Hi, this is Andrew Gregson from GreenLab, and I'm here today with Tom Hoffley from Seedlip. Hi. Welcome to the lab, Tom. Thank you. As part of our podcast, we tend to just take a look back over how you got to where you are. Seedlip's, I think, is a world first. It's a non-alcoholic distilled spirit. Yeah. You've got some quite innovative methods of producing it and also some really interesting projects that are being developed to help support it and deliver it to a broader market. So, you know, rather than me talking throughout this whole podcast, can you tell me, you know, how did you get to where you are and what is Seedlip as a brand and organisation? So, it's really better I start with Seedlip and, and what is Seedlip. Seedlip is, as you said, the world's first non-alcoholic distilled spirit founded by Ben Branson in the back end of 2015. Yeah. So we're not the old, not old at all. And I think this time last year, there were only 10 and 12 employees globally. And now we're up to, I think the last count was 65 over 14 countries globally. Wow, that's a gross. Uh, massive growth. Yeah. Um, so the kind of company it is, is a company that has a really strong vision and a mission. It knows where it wants to get to and it knows what it's doing yeah. and it's growing quickly. So it's an incredibly fast paced and dynamic environment to be in but Ben's aim and Ben's ethos has always been this is a nature company it's inspired by nature everything that we put in the drinks is is a product grown by nature so actually it's always linked back to his farming heritage and his love for the outside world yeah which I suppose is where I suppose if I go back to where I've come from and how I've got to working with Ben and Seedlip as a a nature brand that also is a drinks brand yeah it's really random because it was literally a geography lesson you see, Steve Jobs, there's a quote from Steve Jobs. He gave a speech at Stanford. It's about connecting the dots. When you look back yeah. over your life, you see that, that geography lesson was that turning point when you suddenly thought, actually, I'm going to look at horticulture as a, or botany as a kind of career choice. And it, it was just by pure chance that it happened. Is that the kind of thing? Yeah, it was actually, I was looking through, I think it was in year 10 or 11, at school looking through a geography careers booklet and geography was one of my better subjects and landscape architecture was one of them nice and I went okay this looks really interesting went away looked at it and it was also the so the next dot is um, uh, Homefront in the Garden Dermot Gavin and Lawrence Will and Bowen like gardening was like all over television and they're building these fascinating gardens and it was actually landscape architecture is almost doing cities I'm more interested in sort of the design element so I went away and did that Went to uh, agricultural college. Yeah. Did horticulture, plant science, and garden design. Worked in garden centres, mowed people's lawns. Uh, You've got to start from somewhere. Well, yeah. yeah. But then also, I think a lot of people go, right, I need to know how to make something before I can design something. Yeah. There's no point me drawing walls and patios if I'd never built a wall or laid a patio. Yeah. So it was that so ethos. Kind of get your hands dirty. Exactly. Yeah. So then did garden design, was quite successful, exhibited at Chelsea, RHS Chelsea Flower Show, and Hampton Court Palace Flower Show, went to Sydney and did a garden over there for a show, yeah. New Zealand, so sort of travelled around the world. Did you win some awards? Three golds, Yeah. best in show, at Hampton Court, gold at Chelsea on the first attempt. Yeah, which is good. I mean, is that from, a, from a geography lesson to a gold at Chelsea, it's quite a, quite a leap. Yeah. In terms of your, you know, drive to make. You know, yeah, and they were, they were always different. There was always an element of they were very conceptual and they are pushing the boundaries. Yeah. So there was always an, I've always been interested in technology and how it can help us. Yeah. And how it can help us just explore different ways of dealing with society, how we communicate. In 2013, when Twitter was all the rage, we yeah. did a garden that moved off Twitter. 
that that works. I know with Twitter, you can obviously, you can flood a stream with hashtags and tweets. How did the dynamic of that work? Uh, we had a bit of software. It was 24 Raspberry Pis. Yeah. Um, each one uh, controlling an actuator. And then there was one central computer that was um, mining Twitter for keywords. Didn't even have to be a hashtag. So anyone who tweeted the word garden anywhere in the world it would have a response in the garden it would make a door open or close and we actually could change the word and see them all coming in we didn't display them publicly because obviously we didn't have a filter on them but We could, we could put it on, I think on the Thursday it really rained, so we put on rain. And then all you saw were these grumpy Londoners tweeting about the rain. Yeah. Um, now they're complaining about the weather, aren't they? Because it's too warm. Yeah. Well, it's bloody hot. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, there was always been that focus on tech. And then actually I ended up curating the world's first 3D printed garden show. So we got some of the world's best designers and we got them to design a garden that couldn't actually be designed in real life, but could only be designed in miniature. Yeah. Um, so things that were defying gravity that a structural engineer had previously told them that's going to fall down we said go ahead and do it because it will work yeah. in scale 1 to 50 um, and we put that on in London for a week and then I jumped ship from being a designer and joined the RHS the Royal Horticultural Society yeah. as Chelsea show manager so poacher turned gamekeeper yeah. um, and did that for three years and then for the last 18 months I was also in a dual role so I was also then head of shows development so the strategic development of all 19 RHS shows entertaining over half a million visitors across the UK the Chelsea Flower Show is still will I think continue to be one of the most iconic events in the calendar do you still see the the same level of technology innovation within the Flower Show obviously you look at using Twitter which is quite progressive for the time did you see that at the time when you kind of became the game the poacher no no I can say it now because I'm no longer there I was actually quite disappointed to see the development within garden design as a field and its integration of technology and actually just people pushing the boundaries just seemed to sort of dry up. So it's kind of more traditional display, structure. I mean, I'm not a garden designer, so I'm going to generalise here. So like okay. waterfall, tree in the corner, plant, colour, colour coordination, yeah. species. Well, I think actually what the biggest trend in garden design is and has been for the last four or five years is capturing a landscape yeah. and, and transporting it. So you go to Chelsea this year, walking down Main Avenue, you would see Welcome to Yorkshire doing a Yorkshire garden right next to Trail Finders doing a South Africa garden. Yeah, quite um, traditional. Quite it's very traditional, but just grabbing landscapes. Yeah. So it's not even going, right, we're going to do a play on it. Like Dan Pearson in 2015, Fantastic Garden. Yeah. Lauren Perrier, Chatsworth, basically picked up an element of Chatsworth's rock garden and dumped it in Chelsea. So there's no, okay, well, how are we going to start solving the problems of what's next? Yeah. I mean, that brings on to the, obviously, Seedlip had a role in uh, Chelsea Flashwell this year, didn't they? Uh, this year and last year. Yeah. So that's how I first met Ben. I met Ben and was like, Ben, come on, come and do a garden. Seedlip yeah. would be amazing to do a garden as a sponsor. And so, yeah, so we first met and then we started having lots of conversations. And I suppose with Seedlip, the garden has always been... Seedlip have pushed it conceptually. This year, the whole garden was full of peas, celebrating... Yeah. Well, naturally, I mean... We're Seedlip yeah, Garden yeah. 108 is one of the, the, the sort of hero ingredient is the pea. Yeah. Ben's family have farmed in Lincolnshire for 325 years and for the last, I think, 90 of them, they've grown peas. If we were going to do a garden at Chelsea, it had to be about the pea. But then I suppose leading on to that, like the what next 
thing when myself and Ben started talking about the role that I now do yeah. head of horticulture at Sealip it was almost like that it was the opportunity to re-explore the what's next yeah start looking at the edge of the envelope like pushing the boundaries of what we how we farm how we're going to continue to grow this non-alcoholic world that Sealip has built by being the world's first non-alcoholic distilled spirit yeah it was quite a disruptive move and, and has created its own category so how do we keep on doing that and that's where we're looking at this farm project in North Lincolnshire where yeah. we're actually going to yes it's an R&D centre but it's also a garden and that garden actually is probably more of the focus because it's going to be the thing driving the ingredients into the R&D yeah. so what we can grow and what we can experiment with with different variations of cucumbers say we want to make a distillate using cucumber like maybe we'll do a trial of 15 cucumbers to find the one that's got the yeah, best flavor that's you showed me the slide deck which yeah. kind of had echoes of some of the decks we, we produce and the willy wonka yeah features in that so you've got the kind of umpalumpas i guess the analogy of the cucumbers the peas the raspberry or whatever so you've got this amazing resource at your disposal which is tremendous for an, uh, a drinks organization yeah uh, but then i suppose there's a bigger bit with sea lip it's because we are a nature brand it's looking at, okay, well, the big thing, we're looking at soil. Very few people are thinking about the soil. Was it, they reckon the NFU and Defra of Kind of said 40 to 60 years worth of harvest yeah. left in the UK. Yeah. Topsoil erosion, you look at a satellite image of the UK and like all the estuaries are just brown because all the topsoils are just eroding into the rivers. The soil is dying and we're not looking after it. How are we going to feed ourselves if we don't have any soil? I mean, there's obviously things like hydroponics which is a, a soilless growing mechanism. It requires, obviously, chemicals to, to dissolve the aquaculture, aquaponics. Yeah. But again, that requires large areas of land with large volumes of fish. And again, that might require some, you know. Our soilless growing system is really a suitable alternative for traditional agriculture. I think if you look at, I mean, I've got a colleague of mine who runs a pepper farm, and most of it's hydroponic. It's, I think it's 10 hectares, and it produces a large amount of, you know, peppers. Potatoes, possibly, yes, we can. Carrots, maybe not, because they require substrate that will expand. I think I'm kind of on the fence. I don't think we replace all forms of agriculture. Interestingly, I put a question to Dan Barber through Atlas of the Future, through Cathy Ransom, and asking the question of urban agriculture, future or fad. And he came back with, well, I've tried produce from aqu aquaponics and hydroponic systems. Soil systems produce the best flavor, the best taste. So if it's taste we're going for, probably no, you know. Dan yeah. Bob is a, somebody who knows about taste. Well, exactly, and there's yeah. the whole thing growing for flavour. I think I've listened to that podcast that you did, and she was talking about the fact that there are minerals in the soil that coming in yeah. to the vegetables that we, we need, and that's what also gives it the flavour. Yeah, there's also microbes. There's a whole different... It's like a whole completely different method of growing. Oh, yeah, like the microbes. Like, and there's the whole... Now we're on soil. Like, there is, there's a whole way of farming. Organic... Feeding a field of carrots with organic fertiliser organic feed but not looking after the soil is basically treating the soil as a, just an anchoring mechanism that yeah, holds the carrot yeah. in place yeah that's true yeah. so you're not going to get the better flavour so what you need to do is you need to take the step back and actually start looking after the soil and actually going okay well how do we look after the soil so that's a no-till minimum till system I've come from a background of ornamental horticulture where we would double dig and do lots of soil movement yeah. to make sure, especially within the commercial sector of like garden maintenance, you were digging to make sure you look busy. Um, but now that on a larger scale, if we were all doing it all the time, would kill the soil. So it's like taking that step back and going, okay, well, how do we, do we have to take a step back and make almost cottage industry farming? The question there is, how do you scale that, isn't it? That's a big one. I mean, if you look at, which comes on to my next point around cities, food and people. Yeah. 2050, 
possibly 10 billion people on the planet. We have obviously topsoil erosion, we've got water tables are dropping, we've got climate change to contend with, we've got a growing population that requires more food, our food systems are at kind of stress point. Bees. Bees. I mean, the, 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 the risks I've, of monoculture. I've lost, I've lost a number of fingers on my hand to count. I mean, from Greenlife's perspective, we try and foster and grow early stage businesses to, to address some of these issues. From your perspective as a horticulturalist and somebody who's quite passionate about you know the landscape where do you see cities do you see cities providing a potential solution for food obviously the soil is an issue it then may infer vertical farming could be a potential solution or soilless growing in a confined space we don't have access to hectares of land mass i think there's there's not one single solution true i think you will find in the future if we do solve this problem um, and that's obviously if we haven't destroyed ourselves in another way by 2050. Yeah. I believe in a very urban environment, yet aquaponics, hydroponics, or hydroponics more because you don't need the mass space, is going to play a key role. Obviously, I think if, and for convenience as well, and I wouldn't be surprised if eventually a hydroponically grown lettuce becomes so cheap that it's just accessible to everybody and it would actually start becoming so cheap that people will just go to it because it's the cheapest thing on the shelf. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the projects we bringing to the UK comes from Almeria, which is hydroponic yep. lettuce. So when Spain has a crisis, we only can buy one iceberg. Right. It was yeah, 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 two years ago. Yeah. 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 So why aren't we growing more here hydroponically already is not is a question. But then there was a model of farming, and I've completely forgotten the name of it, and I knew it was going to come up and I didn't look it up. But it's small farms on the outskirts of cities, soil-based farms, so taking up pockets of land that aren't massive, that if actually we started utilising more of those spaces... Is it peri-urban? Yeah, that might be it. But that, that model of farming could could help make a solution or help part of the solution. Yeah. So rather than have 1,000 hectare side, you have 1,000... Well, yeah, then 100 that's... 100 metres square sites. That's going, yeah, that's going sort of further out into the rural, rural landscape is actually, do you need all these massive rolling fields? Could we... How many people do you know who, if someone came up to them and said, look, you could sell your house in suburbia and buy this bit of land and yes, you can build a little cabin on it and you can keep what you grow for yourself to feed yeah. your family, but you can you sell the rest. Yeah, I think that's kind of the point one percent of population possibly. But how many people do you know who would do, who would do it? I mean, I'd be totally up for it, but but then how and how many of your friends do you think if you actually said like, would you do this? I, I think it's it's a lifestyle change, isn't it? The convenience of being able to walk to a mainline metro station on a tube to a pub to a restaurant to you know a metropolis. A lot of people crave that because that's the model of consumerism that we've been almost indoctrinated into over the past what. 50, 60 years. So it's a generational thing. So maybe it's generational change. So that one degree of change that I can influence on a 10-year-old that comes to this lab in 30 years, he'll be the one in the, or she'll be in the 10-hectare site yeah. producing food for local community. Again, by the end, will a top soil be there? You know? Well, that's, these, these are the problems we can start yeah. solving. Myself yeah. and Ben have had quite a few conversations about how it all gets quite scary, doesn't it, when you start going through these things. And it's almost like we're the generation that can decide we're going to do a U-turn. Yeah. My two-year-old daughter's generation is a generation who will start putting the brakes on. And then as you go on, like you're talking about what? the amount. How, if, you go, if you go through in your mind, the amount of points you'd have to do to do a U-turn on the road if you're driving a car, like what, that's eight or nine? 
which yeah, is I, think, I think it's double figures but yeah. but yeah so so like if you imagine you're doing that's how many generations i think we are before we've actually completely yeah, yeah. gone through the, yeah. the change we need to go through but i think there we we have to start making these changes and i think your point about actually the sort of uh modern consumerism and the fact that people want to be able to get on a metro and get there it's I agree I think people do want to do that but then I think we're almost at a point where actually the transport system in this country can sustain your lifestyle if you want to live at the end of a line yeah. you can still get into London and have all of that but you can still it's, it's a completely different thing isn't it then I agree it's the last 60 years that's changed it yeah. but then when you look at the railways the railways broke the country because before the railways if you lived near Watercress or you lived near a dairy you'd get the milk from that dairy and eat at Watercress yeah. from that river and the meat from over there and everything was very local and everyone married there their third cousin and you live this tiny little bubble yeah. the railways came um, I live on the Watercrest line which is called the Watercrest line because it was the old line that used to go from the Watercrest fields up into London yeah. and it instantly changed it like milk from the West Country was getting milked early to get on a train to come up here yeah. we almost need to go right the transport system is in place so people can move freely yeah in the same way that I can now buy a pineapple in deepest winter and that's something this <laughs> is horrible though isn't it yeah. like but then we, why don't we what we should be doing is using it for people but like not for product and I think there is a movement out there this whole seasonally grown grown not flown all these kind of movements they will well, happen yeah I think it's down to what sacrifice you're prepared to make in order to sustain the planet's longevity before we get go too far a couple of last point i was going to look at education a colleague of mine wrote a piece in the nfu about agriculture and schools and how there isn't a clear i think strategy in terms of how we can get you know younger generation engaged in agriculture from my perspective it's looking at technology agriculture we can combine botany and technology like a digital botanist so to speak you've been through a different education system obviously you've come out in a really good position if you were to look back what do you think the education system lacked in terms of the kind of the horticulture food science it lacked i'm from the generation there was a black hole of nothingness and the agricultural college i went to straight after school now i think two years after i left stopped doing most of the courses that i did because it started doing equine golf and football Okay. So my education was everything I've learned and everything that got me interested in horticulture and plants has come from my parenting. Yeah. I think if you're going to try and introduce horticulture back into schools, which I know it already is via the RHS, Campaign for School Gardening, I think they just before I left they had over a ridiculous number of schools all signed up. So there are people out there doing it yeah. and trying to get it involved. I think your your approach of getting the children that are really interested in technology, everyone now has a smartphone. If you can make that smartphone unlock the power of plants, brilliant. Yeah, It's going to unlock their mind. But then I suppose it's also how do we, it's multifaceted. It's like there's never a single answer. Teaching kids where their food comes from and the magic of planting a seed and watch it grow. Those are two, probably the most two fundamental things that I think every child should have an understanding of. So yeah, I think if we can introduce that somehow. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll see what we can do seed what we can do <laughs> okay on that note thank you Tom for your time thank you and I'll uh, look forward to seeing the next brand of distilled non-alcoholic distilled spirits distilled spirit on the market thanks thank you